Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's going on? <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully, I guess. <laughs> That's, That's an adverb. Yeah, good. I know. I, I'm a little nervous because I have an editor who's, uh, who's listening in right now, and he's probably uh, he's making notes already. This is wonderful. We have Dylan Jones with us. And Holly, please tell us about Sir Dylan Jones. <laughs> Dylan Jones is the editor-in-chief of British GQ, where he's been since 1999. He is the author of many, many books, the latest of which is Sweet Dreams, the story of the new romantics, which is what we are going to talk about today and maybe a little bit more. So welcome, Dylan Jones. Do we, do we call you sir? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> because you are officially an officer of the Order of the British Empire, correct? No more suffice, but you're very kind. Thank you. <laughs> what does that entail? You get a nice, you get a, a wonderful medal, but then what do you get? Where are your perks? What are your club perks? Literally none. Oh, I had a, a, my agent, my previous agent, who sadly died. Um, he was made. Uh, he was from. He was from um, New York. Rhodes Scholar, and he was he was made a, a CBE because he spent most of his life in the UK. Big, big literary agent, Ed Victor. And he called me up one morning and said, um, Dylan, I know you have an honor, and I just got this honor, and um, tell me, how do you use it? <laughs> and I said, well, I kind of like it when other people use it, but I, I never use it. And this obviously wasn't the, the answer he wanted. And he asked this question sort of like three or four times. You put it on your business card. You put it on your email. <laughs> I don't use it. And he said, and after a while, as is, was his habit, he said, Dylan, you've been really helpful. I'm going to use it on everything. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I mean, that's it. I mean, or you could be like, uh, that, that was the award that, the, that John Lennon uh, famously threw into the river. Is that? Uh... He only got an MBE. I'm just, I'm just saying. Oh, <laughs> oh, you rank, you rank higher than the B. Nice. Or had he still been with us, um, he would have been knighted. But he, um, I, I just finished writing a piece about John Lennon to celebrate his birthday. It would have been his 80th birthday on October the 9th. Uh, and I was writing about going to the Dakota building about 25 years ago and to have tea with Yoko Ono. And um, uh, I was trying to remember, A, what it looked like, and B, the feeling, the sensation of being in, a, in someone's house like that when they were... The ghost of them were still there. It was an extraordinary afternoon. Very privileged to have been there. Mm. And and I'm sure there are many more uh, many more stories like that. We're, I, we're and actually, you don't mention that in the book. Uh, in this book, uh, which is nineteen Sweet Dreams, nineteen seventy five to nineteen eighty five, there's no mention of of John Lennon in in the book, if I remember correctly. Is what was the impact at that time for for you personally? Well, the um in fact, I, I, I mentioned this in the piece. Written. I mean, it's invidious to say so, but he kind of died at the wrong time because even though it was a terrible tragedy, he wasn't at his creative peak because when Double Fantasy came out, which was the, the, the record that came out about three weeks before he was murdered, uh, it actually was a critical bomb. And actually, even though people revere it now, people didn't like it when it was released. The, the reviews were awful. And actually, it was only... After he died, the, the record became such a such a huge, huge hit. So actually, culturally, um, John Lennon wasn't particularly, um, I mean, it sounds sacrilegious to say so, but he wasn't actually culturally important at the time. 
Wow. I shouldn't have. To no, 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 that's, that's a good take. That's a <laughs> but you're going to lose your medal for saying that, but that's all right. Lost already. <laughs> okay, so... 1975. That's where we start in this book. And I'm, I'm curious myself about why you, I mean, I get the beginning with punk, but how did you choose 1975 as the place to start this book? Well, it's a, it's a period. This period is a period that has been done a huge injustice, I think, by pop historians and cultural historians. There are hundreds of books about punk, books about country and Western, about Britpop, about hip-hop about every genre of music but there are almost no books about this period and i think that this period has been demonized by many people and when people look back upon the 80s they do it with the tongue in their cheek and they and they laugh at the fashions and they say it was a period of shrill brittle pop music and they talk about the decade of style over content and about how mtv drove everything and so in I wanted to kind of try and rescue it, I suppose, uh, and try and do it some justice, because I think it was, A, it was a fantastic period for pop music, uh, and also it was a very bohemian period as well, I think, that has many reverberations in culture today. But I started in 75 because that was the sort of birth of it in terms of the people who were, were first going to, to punk clubs, people who were still going to soul clubs, and that was the sort of genesis of it. And then I ended it in, in 85 because that was, I suppose, the natural conclusion of the success of all the groups that came out of that new romantic period. And they sort of passed the baton on to a, a different generation, an older generation of stars. So you specifically said in the book, or, or maybe it was some of one of the interview subjects, that the, the term new romantics wasn't embraced by those that were considered new romantics, yet punks always, you know, embraced punks. They called themselves punks. What was it about the new romantic title that they didn't find themselves latching onto? Well, the, the original title was, there was a, a piece in a, in a magazine that said, this is the cult with no name. And actually... <laughs> All the, all the people involved in it, they, they sort of hated the idea of being defined. In fact, even though they were neuromantics, w when I came to title the book, I, I almost didn't want to use the term neuromantic because I think a lot of people find it off-putting. They think of people with silly haircuts, wearing lots of makeup, cross-dressing. They think of it in a kind of um, pantomime, fancy dress way, I suppose. So, and, and again, I think the term neuromantic has become a bit of a pejorative. It's if you are dressing up as a new romantic, you're you're sort of you're silly, you know. So as I say, I was trying to rescue it from the from the idea that it was just a sort of fancy dress parade. That's good to hear, and I think you you did with the book. It's it it's funny. I mean, just the uh, our background. Obviously, we grew up. We're we're roughly the same age, and we grew up with this music. But we grew up in Los Angeles. You know, this happens to be our favorite or my problem, maybe even more so than Dave period of music, you know, 80s, early 80s. So it was interesting to hear more background because new, the term new romantic never conjured up anything negative to me as a listener and a fan of the music. But it identified them. It identified some of the artists to me. Um, but it was really great to hear 
more of the background, the clubs, because we only knew the music. We didn't know the scene. We knew the LA music scene and the rock scene, but we didn't know anything about that scene behind the music we loved. So that's just a, a, why we found this particularly interesting. You gave us a whole, I mean, you colored in everything for us. Well, I think one of the reasons, I mean, tell me, I mean, this is this is an idea theory that I have, and you can agree with it or, or contradict me, but I think one of the reasons that the the principal groups of the New Romantic time, the big pop groups that were involved in the Second British Invasion in 1983, when three quarters of the American charts were taken <laughs> over by by British pop groups, I think that one of the reasons I think why they were successful in America and they were critically more positive about the the groups in America than they were in the UK is that. All of these people wanted to be successful. If you were a punk or you were involved in punk, it was all about ideology. The ideology was more important than the music. And to say you wanted to be successful was sort of anathema. How on earth could you want to be successful? You've got to strive to be an artist. And actually, most of the people involved in this, in this time, in this world, in this genre... They wanted to be pop stars. They wanted to be successful. They were fiercely proud of the music they were making, and they made some extraordinary music, but they wanted to be successful. You weren't allowed to want to be successful in the UK at the time. It's weird. Is that yeah. true? Yeah. So, yes or <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, I think it's a little of both. Of course, there was, there was MTV and... And Brit, the Brits were way ahead of us as far as uh, making videos. You know, as you mentioned in your book... There, wa there wasn't a lot of product. There wasn't a lot of artists uh, in America that were making videos. They didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, we had the, you know, famously, Video Killed the Radio Star. I remember, you know, the artist Billy Squire make, trying to make a video, and he's prancing around, and his, you can, as you watch this video, you could literally see his career disappear in the three minutes that song is going on. <laughs> but... Uh, the Brits knew exactly what they it, they made it glamorous. You you know Duran Duran and Adam Ant. It was almost this this fantasy world, and and you know it just captured America's uh, attention. Um, and, and we were also lucky in uh, living in L.A. that we had this radio station KROQ. Um, they were digging through these crates of albums and going through buying the imports, discovering the music, finding out what was being played in the U.K. and playing it in L.A. getting and getting attention. So that. That was also huge. It was a, a, everything coalesced for us. But it's funny, in hindsight, it's easier to, to, you know, to analyze this. You talk about these artists that came over and they wanted to be pop stars. We see nothing. We, we embraced that. We embraced, you know, and, and we added to it. I mean, we added fuel to that fire, obviously, because they had, you know, those that became, you know, so Wham and Duran Duran and those they had the presence, they had the, the sound, they had the, the music, they had everything. And we embraced that. And I couldn't see any reason why they wouldn't. Why, I understand the punk ethos, but why wouldn't you become want, <laughs> want to become a pop star? Why wouldn't that be part of your whole, your whole want, your whole desire? I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, why it wouldn't, but I understand now. And of course, reading the individual stories like, you know, Alison Moye, who, you know, I'm a huge fan didn't necessarily want to be up there in front of people. But Dave, your perception? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think earlier, you know, to break into America, I, I think a lot of Brits didn't realize how big America is. You know, the Sex Pistols maybe hit five towns during their U.S. tour. They had, but they had a great promoter. 
Um, but, uh, I'll, you know, again, with MTV, you could just, if you get played and you look great, you got our attention. And that's, that was certainly the case. I was going to talk about the, because um, I think if you look at the, there, there are some records, but I mean, if you look at sort of Bruce Springsteen videos from the early 80s now, they kind of look ridiculous because <laughs> they had to make a video. And those records, you close your eyes and listen to the music, it's extraordinary. And it's so synonymous with the time, but it almost transcends the time because it, they, are, they are classic records. But then you, you look at a video like uh, for, for Duran Duran's Rio, and the song is synonymous with the video, the video is synonymous with the song. You can't really hear the song without seeing the video. And that's like a perfect encapsulation of that period. And I think that's, that video is, is fantastic because it's, it's a kind of, it's a comedy sort of extravaganza, fantastic aspiration of, of being successful and having a fantastic time. But they were vilified for that in, uh, in, this, in this country because we had minor strikes, we had the Falklands War, and if you were, there, there was very much a sense that in the uh, music press at the time, which was quite a left of centre, there's, there's, there's no way you were sort of allowed to make music unless it was political, uh, and you're, uh, or unless your ideology dovetailed with left-wing political thinking. So a lot of these people were demonized as, as being sort of right-wing or Thatcherite. But apart from Gary Newman, who was openly a conservative, the Tory, I would imagine pretty much everyone else involved in the scene um, was, uh, was, was, was left-leaning. But of course, that didn't fit with what the, uh, the music press, like the medicine maker and sounds, w- wanted to understand. That's a hard, uh, you know, even thinking about it today and music being made today and, you know, art being made today with everything that's going on here in our, well, I mean, I guess everywhere, but specifically in the U.S. We like to separate our art from our, our, our politics, but it's inevitable it's going to cross over. I guess the same thing, you know, the same themes carry on, you know, through the ages. Yeah. 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 Yeah, as you touched on, even with, uh, you know, with George Michael and Boy George, uh, they didn't want to proclaim their sexuality. Uh, they they kind of knew what was uh, that it, in the U.S. You can't talk about that. You had to have a yeah. separate, you know, the Boy George character, the George Michael character, and then, you know, the real person. So I, I think they understood that back in the day that, you know, they have to separate. The whole role, role play thing is fascinating because you had... It's quite. It's, I think it's quite a complex sort of sexuality that this that this music had because, on the one hand, you had very obvious visual representations of men looking like women, women looking like men. You've got Annie Lennox, who is very masculine. You've got Boy George, who is deliberately feminine. Then you had, as, as you say, very very successful pop stars who were household names like George Michael and Boy George, who were very coy about their sexuality, and in George Michael's case, deliberately obtuse. And yet, on the other hand, I think that it did become a great platform for the sort of sexual freedom, I think. And by the time you get to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you have a sense that the two principal people in Frankie Goes to Hollywood are so obviously sort of out there and gay and it's, it's, it's a really sort of positive message. And that's why I think that this is a very, 
It was a very bohemian period and lots of people who came out of that period in London principally went on to have extraordinary careers and in a sense helped define the culture I think in dance and music, in video, in film, journalism, in literature, all over I think. All right, still talking with Dylan Jones, author of Sweet Dreams, From Club Culture to Style Culture, The Story of the New Romantics. We will be right back. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our special guest, Dylan Jones. I wanted to ask you, this is a total aside, but ask you a question about Boy George uh, in the book. I mean, we we know him, you know, we've known him since the 80s, we've known of him and about him since the 80s and some of his history, but didn't <laughs> know that he was considered an intimidating figure. Oh God, in the, um, before he became a pop star, when he, when he became a pop star, Obviously, as you know, he was he was very funny. He was he was cam. He was sort of an outrageous looking person, and yet he was loved by teenage girls. And he became a sort of national hero, He's like the Queen Mother. <laughs> uh, walking around London in the late seventies and going to clubs and seeing George, he was a really intimidating, imposing person because he was this huge, tall drag queen walking around with a yellow face and spiky hair very bitchy very catty and actually he was very intimidating very intimidating it seems crazy to talk about it now but in 1978 1979 if you saw boy george on the street he was a uh, it was quite something you know it was like whoa okay you know <laughs> yeah. and i loved reading about his, his how he finessed a little through the years i guess his first performance or live performance he was cursing at the audience and or cursing and you know parents had brought their kids to see him and so he kind of i wouldn't say refined himself necessarily over the years but learned yeah i think that a lot of those groups were conforming to the ideas of what a pop group should be you know and, and I, they had acts you know they were <laughs> presenting themselves and i think that People talk about authenticity a lot in pop music, and I like Neil Neil Tennant's view on this: is that he thinks authenticity is a style like anything else. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be authentic, but I, I do honestly think that apart from that great period in in the '60s, between probably '64 and '68, I think that this period is probably the greatest period for for British pop music for singles. I think there was such a, 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 a vast array of fantastically varied, brilliant pop singles in this sort of period, say 79 to 83, 84. Um, and if, if the 70s was the decade of the album, I definitely think that the 80s, or at least this part of the 80s, was a decade of the single. I'm glad to hear you say that because it does sometimes get the, the short end of the stick. I think the eighties that, that people don't take them as serious, these artists as seriously as they should have. Yeah. All right. So you talk about authenticity. I guess this also goes to you where um, you started going to the club scene. This is, this is your story as well. Um, you have, uh, you're a blitz kid. Can you talk a little bit about what's, how you dressed, what you look like, what, uh, you know, uh, the, the feelings that you felt going in there and seeing maybe bumping, you know, having to deal with Boy George at the, uh, at the coat room or whatever, you know? How old were you when you first started clubbing? Uh, I, I, I was 18 when I first started clubbing in 1978. And I, pro I mean, I spent 10 years in nightclubs, which is probably far too long. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> not continually. <laughs> I wasn't particularly extravagantly dressed at all, but it was an intoxicating period because I was at St. Martin's, which was the the art school, which was, I suppose, the sort of nucleus of, of all of this. Most of the 
the principal people involved in the in the blitz scene went at St Martin's. I'd say at least fifty percent of them did, maybe more, um, on the fashion course or on the graphics course or on the painting course. And there was a real sense of excitement in London. Um, it was post-punk. I mean, th- these days everybody goes to university. They, I mean, li- li- everybody goes to university. In those days, people people didn't go to university. So going to art school was a very particular thing and you felt quite special. And I have to say that there was, and I don't know where this arrogance came from, but we were, I think we were quite arrogant people. And I think we had this sort of, this sense of entitlement about us, not the kind of entitlement that millennials have now, which is a different kind of entitlement. We did feel that we were quite special. And I I really don't know where this arrogance came from, Um, but it was certainly there. And when we, um, I was I was one of the early editors of ID magazine, and there were there were three very important magazines at the time. There was ID, The Face, and Blitz, and they all launched in the space of three months in the eighties. And they were the they were the original style magazines. They, they were prisms through which the world saw what was happening in London, and then the UK, and then the the, the world and culture at large. And I have to say that we definitely thought. And again, I don't know where this arrogance came from, but we definitely thought that as well as reporting on the culture, as well as mirroring the culture, that we were part of the culture itself. Uh, we very much felt that. And in hindsight, I think we were, but um, in, in our own small way. But it, was, um, it did feel very, very intoxicating because you felt like you were part of something. You felt like you were part of a scene. <laughs> was it trying to get through uh, Steve Strange, or what was what was that process like? The, <laughs> the you know the the gatekeeper, I guess. What was he looking for, I, and what was his? Stra- I mean, you you got into it in the book, but yeah, touch on that. I mean, it, for people who don't know Steve Strange's story, I mean, it was um, the Blitz at the time was pretty much in the UK the first. That was the first club where people took over a nightclub for one one night and invited all their friends in and played a particular type of music. I mean. For, for young people today, that's, there, there's nothing extraordinary about that because the world is full of nightclubs and dance music. But in London at the, at the time, there, nightclubs were for old people. Uh, <laughs> unless you were into soul music, and there were lots of soul clubs. And if you were into to, to, uh, to, to rock music or pop music, you went to see concerts. There weren't really interesting nightclubs. And then the, the, the billies started, then the blitz, and then they all sort of started mushrooming around London and mushrooming around the country. But Steve Drange was the doorman of of the Blitz, and he was a very formidable character, working from Wales, very extravagantly dressed. And he used to stand on the door and said, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And um, (laughs) a lot of people found that very intimidating. In fact, he he famously, Mick Jagger, turned up having had dinner somewhere, maybe at the Zanzibar or something. He turns up in his training shoes and his jeans and his, you know, his, his, um, his nylon jacket and said, I'm, I'm not letting you in. <laughs> and that was quite a big deal at the time. I mean, it seems farcical that that's a cultural moment, but it was quite a big deal at the time. Although famously Bowie came once. And of course, Bowie was largely responsible for the whole scene because yeah. most of the principal architects of, Blitz scene were, were, were Bowie kids. All of us revered David Bowie. We'd fallen in love with Ziggy Stardust, and we sort of carried that with us, really. That's definitely the running theme throughout the book, yeah. is uh, everyone's passion for Bowie. 
Yeah, that was uh, that was the through line, I guess. You know, with with the Beatles, everyone started up a band. How did Bowie influence your, your personal style? Well, I saw. I, I wrote. I've written two books on Bowie. My first book on Bowie was about his his his, his appearance on, on Top of the Pops, big TV show in the seventies, when he when he came on and played Starman. And this at the time, this was this was such a generational moment top of the pops at the time was watched by about 12 million people which would have been about 25 percent of the population mm-hmm. massive show i mean when tv was big and it's it's a real rite of passage for people of my generation saw david bowie playing starman and it kind of changed our lives and i, I remember the last time i had a sort of long conversation with my father before he died was in 19 um sorry 2011 and he came to stay at Christmas, and, and he said, what are you working on at the moment? You know, are you working on any books? And I said, yeah, I'm working on this project. I'm working on this book, which is about David Bowie's appearance on Top of the Pops in 1972 and what it, what, what it meant to the culture and how it kick-started all of these little sort of rivulets of, 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 of culture and how it influenced so much. And um, I described... The, the amazing music, I described the color, I described the color of his hair, what he was wearing, the lights, the whole thing. And my father let me wang on for ages talking about this. And then he very quietly said, you do realize we had a black and white television at the time. Right? <laughs> so it sort of fed into it afterwards. But um, it was a very important moment. And people, and I was 12 at the time, and people re- re- responded in many different ways. Some people started dressing like Bowie. Some people wanted to go and see Bowie in concerts. Uh, some people wanted to buy all his records. What I wanted to do was have hair like David Bowie. And so I, I summoned up the courage to call around various, what in those days were called unisex hair salons. Those hair salons that would, would, that, that would you know, cut men and women's hair in the same place, which was still a kind of freaky idea at the time. And I called a few of them and said, uh, I want to have my hair like Debbie Bowie. And most of them didn't know what I was talking about. And one did. And I made a, 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 um, uh, an appointment to go and, and see them. So and I had a, a photo. So the Saturday afterwards, so in about 10 days after this show, on a Saturday, I go into this hair salon. I'm 12 years old. And I got a photograph of David <laughs> Bowie. And I said, I'd like to look like that, please. And, uh, and the hairdresser just looked at me and said, looked at my floppy hair because I had long, lank hair. And he said, absolutely no way can I give you hair, hair like this. And I was really disappointed, but I didn't want to leave without something. So actually, I left that day looking like Dave Hill, the guitarist in Slade, who had sort of like crop hair and long hair. And the weird thing is, when I, when I read Boy George's autobiography that came out about 20 years ago, he had exactly the same experience. <laughs> exactly the same experience. That's great. That was, um, that was my um, attempt to um, look like David Bowie. But Bowie had a, did have a huge effect on people. Huge effect. Yeah. And I think, obviously, he became a, a, a very important artist. And I think one of the few people from this world who you could say was touched with genius. I honestly think that David Bowie is the Picasso of, of this world. I think he was an extraordinary art, artist. But he did have long tentacles. And um, the sort of re- the reverberations of David Bowie and what he did to the culture, specifically with, with, with style and music, was very influential for, for this period, for the sort of sweet dreams, new romantic period. The other 
through line is uh, is Brian Ferry that you touched on, which I I didn't really realize the the impact he had in the UK and how important he was. Uh, please explain why it was Bowie and Brian Ferry that that meant so much to to the youth. Well, Brian Ferry, again, I think that uh, uh, the early Roxy Music albums were as revered as the early David Bowie albums in the seventies. For your pleasure and stranded and country life, they were they were they were they were real touchstone records because he was fusing that idea of sort of future retro style with hard rock. People really really resonated with people. And then when he started performing solo, he had he was very his thing was he he wanted to be sophisticated, both in himself and in the way he portrayed himself in in his art, in, in the way that, that he was photographed, album covers, the way he appeared on stage. It was about looking like Gary Cooper or, or Cary Grant. It was all about dressing up in tuxedos and with, 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 you know, with smoking jackets and being photographed by swimming pools with models. And um, he, he was a working-class guy from Newcastle. And this was sheer aspiration. And I think for lots of working-class and, and lower-middle-class people like myself, he looked at Brian Ferry and went, Wow, I want that. Mm-hmm. I, I want sophisticated. I want to be in that in that world. It was a far it was a much narrower seam of influence than Bowie, but it was just as important. And I I quote a friend of mine in the book called Fiona Dealey, who the who the book is dedicated to. And she describes going to a, a, a Brian Ferry concert at the Royal Albert Hall and looking up and seeing what she thought was a sort of VIP box. And thinking to herself, that's what I want. Mm. That that's what I want. And actually, that sort of lust, driving for sophistication, and an, an idea of a sort of moneyed world, was definitely something which which drove this scene. And I think that Brian Ferry became sort of less influential the older he became, and as he came into the eighties, for two reasons: a because the music became so refined that it was it ceased to have a sort of cultural impact. And secondly, I think because because he was such a traditionalist, because he basically wanted to be an English country gent, he wanted to be part of the aristocracy, that his idea of sophistication became sort of old fashioned to a group of people who were in their twenties, had been who had been exposed to lots of different types of sophistication and were perhaps already slightly more culturally sophisticated than Brian Ferry was. <laughs> well, you mentioned, I mean, in the eighties that you had a couple of quotes, like there was a quote saying, all you needed is a tape recorder and a microphone to create some music. <laughs> and that, you know, that's, that's what it became, or, you know, like someone who else was, uh, was talking about, uh, this artist was laughing. That's, you know, there were artists trying to learn three chords. All I needed was one finger. Suddenly music is changing. <laughs> I think that the um, if you think that if the Sex Pistols were the sort of lodestar for the punk generation, then 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 Kraftwerk were probably the lodestar for for this generation. There was actually a real sort of punk element to a lot of this music, particularly the synth bands, the synth duos, because you're right. Instead of learning three chords and bashing out a punk song, they were buying computers and trying to make music that way. And of course, I think people always forget that musical ambition is always married by talent. 
So the, then the music you're making is a combination of what you want it to sound like and what you're actually able to make it sound mm-hmm. like. And where that's where the that's where the interesting t- tension is, I think. You talked a little bit about the tension between David Bowie and Gary Newman. Bowie's almost hatred of Gary Newman and how awful he was to him. Can you talk a little bit more more about that? <laughs> Bowie found Gary Newman preposterous. He thought he was a so-called ham and a sham. And I think he hated the way that Newman had taken on the sort of visual tropes of Bowie and was sort of copying him, but in a really sort of like Woolworths way, a sort of really tacky downmarket way. I mean, there is a, um, an album cover of, of Gary Newman's, I can't remember what it's called, might be called The Pleasure Principle. I, I can't remember. I didn't particularly like his music. but And he's staring at a small metallic pyramid, and it's so sort of pretentious. It, it just does it, it's literally meaningless. And I think that um, you can take images like that, and you can take the uh, Vienna video for old Ultravox and see a lot of meaningless sort of staring into the distance. Um, people being very sort of tortured <laughs> because they have something on the horizon or um, they're wearing makeup and they're going ah like this and it's um so i think there are sort of ludicrous moments and i think they're sort of crystallized in gary newman i think gary newman made some very good records yeah very good records. our friends electric is is a kind of masterpiece but i think he was derided by lots of people because he didn't come across very well in in, in interviews i think because he was quite serious that he was a he sort of fell between the sort of black and white weekly music press and the sort of color style press. He wasn't good enough for either, really. And he was he was treated quite badly, but sp- he was treated spectacularly badly by Bowie. Bowie even banned him from from appearing on the same television <laughs> once, which I thought was rather <laughs> rather brutal. I think the fact that he has a hat has Aspergers is uh, obviously contributes to his his you know maybe discomfort in public, but I feel, I feel like he also, because he seems to be, my perception is that more respected now. Oh, completely. And actually I am, um, I interviewed him for the book and he was an absolute, absolute joy. And I think that you're completely right. I think that the, ad, the Asperger's made it, made it, made it very difficult for him to connect with people and, and with media. But of course, in those days, he didn't talk about things like that. Yeah. yeah. Brings me to another point. Uh, Another favorite quote from Andrew Ridgely saying, like, we had nothing to rebel against. So, you know, we made fun music. And if everything is going well, wham kind of kind of reflected the times, obviously. Or or was wham. it? Or was it? <laughs> they, they were an interesting conundrum because, as you know, George Michael needed Andrew Ridgely to, to be wham. Uh, George was the, the real talent, but he needed Andrew Ridgely's confidence, Andrew Ridgely's good looks. Andrew Ridley's ability to charm, to dance, to be mm-hmm. a sort of front man in a way. And it took a while for George Michael to get the confidence to, to step out and, and have a career by himself. But he would not have been successful without Andrew Ridgely. And yeah, I mean, I think both of them, they were kind of, they were a bit younger and they didn't really get punk. They thought it was a bit silly, a bit aggressive. They, they're the prime example of a, a group in this, world who were uh, who wanted to be very very successful and they were both talented i mean george was an incredibly talented songwriter and obviously turned into a very mature songwriter but the way that 
pivoted the way that the springboard was as a, as a very popular, almost like a boy band, I suppose, but a boy band created by themselves. Mm-hmm. Obviously very popular, but underrated as artists at the time. There was a time when uh, Wham! came back after a sort of six months break, I think, where I think they'd been touring with Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. Lots of people went, ugh, this is suddenly too poppy, but we loved it. We embraced it. We kind of got it. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 we knew what they were doing. I, I remember going to the final, which is the big gig they did at Wembley Stadium after they, and, right. uh, they were splitting up and George was going solo. And I wasn't exactly the, the, the sort of quintessential demo, the demographic because I was a 26-year-old man, but we had a fantastic time. They were great. We have to mention Malcolm McLaren, a manager yeah. who's kind of orchestrating a, a lot in the in the seventies and and kind of had I don't know was he a puppet master or was he what what was the sauce for uh, for Malcolm and Vivian Westwood and and the the sex shop how important he was it I mean he was incredibly important and he was a puppet master and he was responsible for creating the sex pistol he was responsible for Bow Wow Wow he was responsible for the look of Adamant I mean Adamant was a, a struggling ex punk who hired Malcolm. Claren to give him uh, a sort of overhaul. Uh, he gave him a thousand pounds, and <laughs> Matt McLaren said, "Look at the tape of Gary Glitter and Burundi drumming, and I think you look like a pirate. Thank you very much. Put the money there. I'll be off. And by the way, I'll also steal your group, turn them into Bow Wow Wow, and fire and hire a a fourteen year old, I think, Malaysian girl to front them. So he was an integral part of the scene as well, although." He obviously predates it because he was a shopkeeper with his partner, Vivian Westwood, and obviously was responsible for the Sex Pistols and and then went on to have a a very successful solo career as well. Fascinating man. I interviewed him once. I interviewed him many times, but I interviewed him once in a sushi bar, the Kensington Hilton, in 1987. And we were drinking beer. And you just split up with Lauren Hutton. We were drinking a lot of beer. At one point... I had to go to the loo. Claren was going, well, man, yes, he's like talking, talking, talking. And I had to go to the loo. And because it was in a, a hotel, a round trip would have probably been about seven, eight minutes, maybe a bit longer. And when I transcribed the tape the following day, he hadn't stopped talking. <laughs> <laughs> Into this tape recorder, as oblivious to the fact that, that I wasn't there talking about how much he loved Vivian Westwood and all of this stuff. It was crazy, but he was a, yeah, he was a real character. <laughs> that says a lot about him, actually, that he continued to talk. <laughs> Nick Rhodes says once he saw Adam Ant dressed as a pirate, that the new romantic scene was dead. And so he went immediately and got some uh, Anthony Price suits. And, you know, that, that established the look for Duran Duran. Yeah, I mean, they were, um, along with Spandau, they were the sort of quintessential band of the moment there was incredible rivalry between them duran duran again were were derided from a lot of their music but i think a lot of their songs they make fantastic pop music and they look great as a anthony price thinks they look terrific (laughs) yes holly agrees i agree (laughs) i mean i think that was almost distracting is that they were they were so good looking but yet they were making these perfect pop songs and these it's great music. For someone like uh, in a, an L.A. guy, it was whose sister was loving them and had their posters up. It's like, I, I don't think I should like this band. But yet I did. I, I found them uh, immensely uh, interesting. Great pop. 
Yeah, that's that's funny that we cared about it at the time. You know, your you know what that says, what it says about you that you like them. And Dave and I, we've discussed this on a, on previous podcasts. What it says about you? Who cares? Music is art, and it's personal. And who cares about the reasons you like Duran Duran? You know, if you think they're great and they make great videos, or if you just like Simon LeBon's voice. You know, which is why I say that um, one of the reasons I wanted to write a book was to try and almost reclaim them it sounds pretentious but it's um a, a lot of that music was very very good well we agree you came to the right place <laughs> to say that yeah <laughs> i'm, I'm indoor here i'm sorry that's good that's good <laughs> it's actually the whole reason we started this podcast <laughs> yeah. no but it's brilliant i think that the the 80s i mean as you know yourself they may be better than i do it's um i mean there was there was a phase about 15 years ago in the UK for um, lots of programs that were about, you know, the crazy 80s. And it was always focusing on rah-rah skirts and Duran Duran and Boyd George's makeup. And But that's changing now. And I think that what happened to the 70s is now happening to the 80s. There was a period when the 70s was always called the decade that taste forgot. <laughs> and then after a the 80s became the decade that taste forgot. But I think, I think it is being reclaimed culturally because i think that with with distance people understand the importance of the sort of narrative arc of that period your book culminates almost like with live aid all of a sudden it's all these artists together in one place and putting that all together is is that the way you envisioned it or in a way i wanted to finish with 1985 because i do think it's a full stop because i think that the a lot of the excitement uh, and the dynamism and that period had dissipated, but some very, very popular and pop groups came out of it. And many of them appeared at Live Aid, particularly the British part of Live Aid at Wembley Stadium. And I, and I was at that concert. I wrote a book about it. But I think that for me, the interesting thing was that most of the acts at the beginning of the day, the early part of the day, were the likes of Spandau Ballet, Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw, Adam Ant. A lot of people had come out of that scene. And then towards the evening, you had these sort of rock beer moths like The Who, Queen, Elton John, Bowie, U2. And I think that there was a lot of people who were at the concert, a lot of people watching on television around the world suddenly thought to themselves, you know what, I really like Queen. I really like Elton John. I really like Paul McCartney. I really like that. These people who had had huge careers in the 70s who all perhaps had sort of wandered off from And after that period, after that event, suddenly it was all about the big stars. Everybody wanted to play stadiums. Prince came to play Wembley Arena. Madonna came to play Wembley Stadium. Michael Jackson came to play Wembley Stadium. It was all about playing stadiums. Everybody wanted to, to play stadiums. And it was almost like a switch, and, and, and a lot of the artists, those younger artists, the Adamants and the Spandaus of this world, didn't really have big hits after that. It, 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 for me, it seemed like a natural end. It was a natural end to the period, and it was a natural end to the book. It's a great read. Highly recommend for anybody who's a fan of the era in, in any regard. It was really, really a great read. You're very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Before we uh, we wrap it up, uh, you, you mentioned every band needed a killer emotional ballad. What is your favorite killer emotional ballad? Careless Whisper. Very good. And why is that? Uh, because I think at the time, no one expected George Michael to be able to write 
as such a heartfelt, emotional, powerful song. It's a really powerful melody. It's got extraordinary lyrics. It's got a great saxophone break, beautifully produced. It's a fantastic ballad, and it still works today, 36 years later. I don't know if I would put Careless Whisper above all of my heart, but I understand. <laughs> You're a very bad woman. I'm not talking to you again. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, we'll have done that. We can edit that out and then will you come back? <laughs> uh, you captured this moment in time, this 10 year period, 1975 to 1985. Dylan Jones, Sweet Dreams, From Club Culture to Style Culture, The Story of the New Romantics. And uh, it's a great read. It was just, it was wonderful. One of the highlights is you put, uh, you put a discography at the end of it. And that's going to be a playlist that I'm going to be making. It's, uh, it was, yeah, it's really nice to, uh, you know, it'll be something to, uh, to go through. I mean, like your book, it's, it's, it's gonna, it's a very hefty and a lot to get through, but I I look forward to uh, revisiting a lot of these songs. And it was kind of nice to, to revisit that time, that period that I wasn't quite a part of, but then grew into, you know, as I got older and just a lot of fun to to read and and, uh, reminisce. And think Great. about it. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. And it's been really good talking to you. Thank you, guys. All right. Sir Dylan Jones, hey. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so how about that talk with Sir Dylan Jones? That was kind of cool. That was fantastic. And I could have spoken to him forever. So many, so many questions, so much information about the 80s and all of our favorite artists. So thank you to Dylan Jones for writing the book and for being a guest on our podcast. Again, the book is Sweet Dreams, From Club Culture to Style Culture, The Story of the New Romantics. Big thank you to Becky Kramer at Faber and Faber slash Cursive Communications, who hooked us up with, uh, with Dylan Jones. Really appreciate that. Wonderful, wonderful book, wonderful read. And also check us out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And YouTube, by the way. And you can check us out on our website, WDDIMpodcast.com. What Difference Does It Make is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family. Spectacular. Okay, so until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.